Good. Well, can I add my very warm welcome to that that you've already received? And uh, as has already been said, we're, we're in a, a rather strange uh, phase at St. Barnabas. Our normal practice is to work through uh, a whole book of the Bible or a portion of a whole book. But because of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we're doing something rather odd and uh, we're looking at a different idea that was rediscovered at the time of the Protestant Reformation each week. And uh, this week it's grace. And I mention that because we follow up the Sunday service with um, a midweek Bible study. And uh, I do recommend this study very highly indeed. Um, It's a DVD-based course. You get a lovely booklet. And each week you'll meet one of the different reformers. Uh, You'll hear the idea that he or she, uh, that he discovered. And uh, then we think about where they saw this in Scripture and how it applies to our lives. And I mention it because it's not too late to hop on the bus. And if you'd like to join us Wednesday evening, 7 o'clock at our home, we'd love to see you. Well, do please uh, keep your Bibles open. And uh, you might like to open the bulletin and you'll find on the inside of the white bulletin uh, an outline of where we're going to be going in the next few minutes. But first, let me pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you and praise you for the way that you worked through men like Martin Luther to recover the gospel of salvation. Lord, may we not squander it, despise it, or ignore it. And so we pray that as we look at this very precious part of your word this morning, that what we know not you will teach us, what we have not you will give us, and what we are not you will make us. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, Jeremy Bentham was an influential philosopher and a social reformer. Um, After a very long and distinguished career, he died in 1832 at the age of 84. And before he died, he gave orders that his entire estate should be given to the University College Hospital in London on one condition. And the condition was that after his death, his body should be preserved and placed in attendance at all the University College Hospital board meetings. Um, It was rather an odd request, but the hospital respected his wishes and every year to this day, uh, Jeremy Bentham is wheeled up to the boardroom table and uh, the chairman says, Jeremy Bentham, present but not voting. Uh, It's a bizarre reflection of his atheist philosophy. Uh, During the meetings, Jeremy Bentham will never raise his hand, he will never vote, because, of course, he's been dead for more than 180 years. Dead people don't vote. In fact, dead people don't do very much at all. And uh, in our passage this morning, that is the picture that the Apostle Paul paints of the spiritual condition of every single human being apart from Christ. He says they are dead. 
And he says it twice. He says it in verse 1, and he says it again in verse 5. Now, when the Apostle Paul says something more than once, we know, don't we, that it's important. And so we're going to spend most of our time this morning thinking about what he meant and what God has done about it. But to get us started, um, I want to invite you to ask yourselves a question. And the question is this, who do you think you are? It's a question that uh, everybody, of course, uh, asks themselves at some time or other, and uh, plenty of people go all the way through their lives without ever finding the answer. But when you think about yourself, what is the first thing that comes into your mind? I suppose for many people, their identity is inseparable from what they do. Uh, So they might say, well, um, I'm a salesman, or I'm a dentist, I'm a housewife, Uh, that's who I am. Now, there's of course nothing wrong with any of those answers, so long as we recognise that they are hopelessly incomplete, because they shrink your identity as a human being down to the limitations of your career or occupation. And so, of course, when your career comes to an end, either through death uh, or illness uh, or retrenchment, the question remains. But without a better answer, of course, the question becomes rather unsettling. It becomes, who do you think you are now? Well, the good news for the Christian is that he or she doesn't have to agonise about this because the Bible gives us the answer. It's there in verse 10 of our passage this morning where the Apostle Paul says, we are God's workmanship. If you're a Christian, that's who you are. You are God's workmanship. It's actually the most important thing that can be said about you. And unlike your career or your occupation, it'll still be true a million years from now. You are God's workmanship this morning, and you always will be. Now, as I say, we're we're in a short series thinking about the important ideas that came out of the Reformation, um, ideas that changed the world 500 years ago and have been changing lives ever since. And one of these ideas is that uh, becoming a Christian, becoming God's workmanship, isn't about anything that we do. From start to finish, it's a miracle of God's grace. Of course, it's the miracle that caused uh, John Newton to write the best-loved hymn in the English language. And what this miracle of grace looks like in practice is the subject of our passage this morning. It's actually one of the most famous passages in the whole of the Bible because it summarises so very clearly and beautifully, I think, what God does when he makes someone into a Christian. And Paul puts it before us in three distinct stages. 
So in verses 1 to 3, he shows us our helpless bondage. And then in verses 4 to 7, he describes God's powerful liberation. And then lastly, in verses 8 to 10, he reveals why God's done it, God's gracious purpose. So firstly then, verses 1 to 3, our helpless bondage. Now in the opening verses, Paul describes the condition of every human being who doesn't have a personal relationship with Jesus. And you'll notice he says that they are following certain things. And these things define who and what they are. Now, I need to tell you that the word follow in verse 2 and verse 3 is a very weak translation because it sounds like these people have made a free choice. But the text in the original means something totally different. The word translated following means to be mastered by or to be under the control of something or someone. So the picture that Paul is giving us is that the unbeliever is actually enslaved to these things whether he realises it or not. He has no choice in the matter. Um, It's a picture, I think, of helpless captivity, rather like Israel in Egypt. So what are these powerful forces that are holding the unbeliever in bondage? Well, first of all, in verse 2, he is enslaved to the ways of the world. Now that's Paul's way of talking about the patterns of thought and the lifestyle that come from the surrounding culture. And the point is that the culture is not spiritually neutral. It has firmly rejected God. And it's decided it can manage perfectly well without him. So, what are the ways of this God-rejecting world? Well, in questions of morality, the world's position is, if it feels right, it can't possibly be wrong. If you want to do something, as long as it's not going to directly hurt somebody else, well, just go ahead and do it. When it thinks about prosperity, the world's attitude is, well, there is lasting fulfilment in wealth. It really can make you happy. You might occasionally give just a little bit to those in need, but do make sure you hold on to enough so that you can enjoy yourself. After all, you're worth it. In spirituality, uh, the world says... God is an optional lifestyle choice. Uh, The Bible, well, it's a terribly useful book, but it's not the authoritative word of God. So take what's helpful for you and leave the rest behind. Now these are the ideas that dominate the unbeliever's worldview. He might go to church, He may say some very religious things on Sunday morning, 
But during the week, the ways of the world control his behaviour and his lifestyle. Second, also in verse 2, the unbeliever is enslaved to the devil. I say that because Paul describes him here as the ruler of the kingdom of the air and that's just another word for the devil. And because he's a ruler, he has a considerable amount of power. The great question is, well, how does he actually use it? Well, keep a finger uh, in Ephesians for a moment and won't you please turn to 2 Corinthians on page 816. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, page 816. A very important text where the Apostle Paul tells us how the devil exercises his power over everyone who is not a Christian. Verse 4. The God of this age, that is the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Now that's crystal clear, isn't it? And if that isn't a picture of slavery, well, I don't know what is. You know, sometimes I've been talking to somebody about the gospel and uh, when I look back on our conversation, I honestly think I couldn't have explained it any more clearly if I'd tried. But he simply can't understand it. He may be at the top of his profession, He may be absolutely brilliant at what he does, but where the gospel is concerned, his thinking is totally confused. Verse 4 explains why. Well, come back to Ephesians, and notice thirdly, that the unbeliever is enslaved to the flesh. Verse 3. All of us, also lived amongst them at one time. And by the way, when when he says all of us, Paul's talking about himself. He's including himself in this. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. That tells us that the unbeliever is following, that is to say he is under the control of, the desires and the thoughts of his sinful nature. And Paul's saying, you see, that by nature, all of us are profoundly self-centred. Now, I realise that most of us recoil from that idea, but you see, that's only because we're blind to what we're really like. We usually don't see ourselves as we actually are. Uh, In the middle of the last century, uh, A.W. Tozer wrote a marvellous book called The Knowledge of the Holy, in which he, he unmasked the spiritual blindness of his own generation. And concerning our self-centeredness, this is what he had to say. Quote, Because man is born a rebel... He is unaware that he is one. 
his constant assertion of self appears to him a perfectly normal thing. He's willing to share himself, sometimes even to sacrifice himself for a desired end, but never to dethrone himself. No matter how far down the scale of social acceptance he may slide, he is still in his own eyes a king on a throne. And no one, not even God, can take that throne from him. Sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one. A moral being created to worship before the throne of God sits on the throne of his own selfhood and from that elevated position declares, I am. End quote. So those are the three powers that hold every unbeliever in captivity. What are they? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And the effect of all of this, you see, is not simply captivity. It's actually something far, far worse. Paul describes the effect in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed these awful things. So the effect of this bondage is death. Now why death? Well, the point of the image of death is that, rather like Jeremy Bentham, these people can't do anything for themselves. When it comes to salvation, they're in a state of complete helplessness. So, just to to give you an illustration, think for a moment of Lazarus in the Gospel of John. You know the story well, so you don't need to turn to it. But you remember, don't you, that Lazarus fell ill and he died before Jesus could get to him. When Jesus does finally arrive, Lazarus, of course, has already been dead in the grave for four days. Now, just imagine for a moment that you had been there on that great day when Jesus approached the tomb. And let's suppose for a moment that uh, you knew Lazarus rather well and you desperately wanted for him to be reunited with his family. Suppose you had stood outside the tomb and you had called out, uh, Lazarus, time to get up. You need to get up now and come out because Jesus is here. Lazarus, come on now. I mean, all you need to do is is reach out uh, to Jesus and he will save you. If you take the first step, Jesus, he'll do the rest. Now, of course, If you had said that, what would have happened? Well, the only thing that would have happened is that people would have said you were bonkers. Um, They would have had you locked up. Because everybody knew that Lazarus was dead. If Lazarus was going to be rescued, Jesus would have to do everything. Everything depended on the power of of Jesus. And by describing the unbeliever as dead, Paul is saying that the unbeliever is just like Lazarus in the tomb, completely helpless to do anything 
to save himself. And unless God intervenes, there is even worse to come. Because at the end of verse 3, can we all see the end of verse 3? Terribly important. Paul says, talking about himself before he was converted, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now, a very great deal of contemporary Christianity hesitates to speak about the wrath of God. It's terribly bad for business. And churches are frightened that people will laugh and they simply won't bother to come back. But the Bible takes the wrath of God with the utmost seriousness. More than 600 passages in the Bible address the subject of God's wrath directly. And Jesus, of course, gave countless warnings about it. Here, Paul's point is that there is only one way for anybody to escape the wrath of God and that is for Christ to stand in their place. But of course the unbeliever can't see that because he's dead. So if he's going to be saved there has to be a miracle. And praise God there is. Because secondly Paul describes in verses 4 to 7 God's powerful liberation. Now in the first chapter of Ephesians and you can read it later Paul says that there is an inexhaustible supply of spiritual power available to every believer through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our passage Paul shows us that becoming a Christian is itself an experience of the unstoppable power of Almighty God. If you're a Christian this morning, you have already had a taste of this. Now, how do we get there? Well, we've just seen that every human being can do absolutely nothing to save themselves, either from spiritual death, or from the wrath to come. It's a hopeless situation. Now look at verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now what I want you to notice is that when God makes somebody a Christian he uses his unstoppable power to reverse every aspect of the helpless condition we had as an unbeliever. He reverses every aspect of the condition Paul described in verses 1 to 3. So first of all God calls us out of our own spiritual tomb. Do you remember Paul started out in verse 1 by saying we were dead? And just as God raised Christ from death by his mighty power, so in making us Christians, God makes us alive with Christ. How does he do it? 
Well, cast your mind back to Lazarus. And do you remember that although he was dead and therefore deaf, Lazarus responded to the word of Christ. Jesus spoke. He said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus did. Christ made Lazarus alive by his powerful, life-giving word. And shortly afterwards, Jesus sat down and enjoyed a delicious meal with him. And it's exactly the same with us. What Christ did for Lazarus physically through his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he does for us spiritually. And if you're a Christian, it means that there was a time when you heard the Lord calling to you, come out. And the same power that enabled you to hear the command also gave you the ability to respond. And you emerge from your spiritual tomb to a new life with wonderful new possibilities. Second, in making a Christian, God liberates us from bondage. Just have a look with me at verse 6. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, that's not an easy statement, but I have to tell you it's a very remarkable one because physically we're still here on earth. So what on earth does Paul mean when he says that the Christian has been raised in Christ in the heavenly realms? Well, do you remember in verses 1 to 3 that Paul said we were slaves to the world, the flesh and the devil. But in saying that we've been raised up to the heavenly realms, Paul is telling us that we've been raised up and placed in a new kingdom with a new master. And of course in heaven there are no slaves. So if that's where we are, well, we must be there as free men and women. Our time of slavery is over. Now that doesn't of course mean that we will always live totally sinless lives. But it does mean that we have a new power not to sin that we didn't have before. But there's something even more wonderful here. Because to be seated with Christ, which is what Paul says, is to be in the place of special intimacy and revelation. Do you remember the account of the Last Supper in the Gospel of John? I think it is worth turning to it, so keep a finger in Ephesians and turn with me to John 13 on page 761. John chapter 13 page 761 and while you're turning there let me give you the context John says that um, he was reclining next to Jesus at the Last Supper and during the meal Jesus announced that one of the twelve was going to betray him uh, Peter was desperately troubled by this 
And uh, he asked John to ask Jesus which disciple he was talking about. Now have a look at verse 25. Speaking about himself, John says, leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot. Now notice where John was sitting. He was seated next to Jesus. And he was the one who received the revelation. So come back to Ephesians 2 and look at verse 6 all over again through fresh spectacles. Paul says in verse 6, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Why? In order that in the coming ages he might show or reveal the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You see, friends, to be a Christian is to be seated with Christ at the right hand of God in the special place of intimacy and revelation. It is the place where God opens up his heart to us, showing us the incomparable riches of his grace. And if you're a Christian, that's where you are this morning. And then the third aspect of God's work in the making of a Christian is that instead of being objects of his wrath, he's made us objects of grace. Now Paul is especially concerned in this passage that we should understand that it is by grace we have been saved. Do you notice he says it twice? Once in verse 5 and then again in verse 8. But what does he mean? Well, in one of his books, the Christian author C.S. Lewis tells of a time when he had been giving uh, one of his talks and afterwards somebody came up to him and asked him if he could put his finger on the main difference between Christianity and all the other religions of the world. And C.S. Lewis replied, well, you know, it's really very simple. It's the difference between do and done. What he meant was that in every other religion of the world there is a ladder with God at the top and man at the bottom. And in all the other religions of the world man is expected to do certain things to make his way up the ladder to God. Now, sometimes that's uh, very obvious. Those steps on the ladder are very clear. Uh, for example, it might be adhering to the five pillars of Islam um, or following the eightfold path of enlightenment. Or if you were with us last night and watching the Luther film, it might be going to confession and doing your acts of penance. But sometimes the steps on the man-made ladder are a bit more subtle. 
It might be, you know, I make every effort to live by the golden rule, to do to others as I would have them do to me. Or it might be going from church from time to time. Or it might be helping the underprivileged. All excellent things to be doing. Whatever it is, though, in every case, the worshipper is trying to work his way up the ladder to God. It's all about what we do. But Christianity is absolutely unique in that it's not about what we do at all. It's about what God has already done. It's what he's done in coming down the ladder in the person of the Lord Jesus. He's come down the ladder to us and he's already died in our place to put us right with God. Now that's what the Apostle Paul means when he talks about grace. And all we have to do is to accept this marvellous salvation as a free gift. This was the second great discovery that they made at the time of the Reformation. Now to me, the great puzzle is, well, you know, why why do so many people not want to receive the free gift? I mean, we're all suckers for free gifts, aren't we? I thought we were. Why is that? Well, as I've been thinking about it, you know, I think one of the reasons is that people are alarmed at the idea of being faced with the decision today. You see, it's one thing, isn't it, to be faced with the decision to receive the gift when I, as it were, stand on the threshold of eternity, um, you know, either in the hospice or the cancer ward or wherever it is. You know, if the gospel were that I can live as I please today and accept the gift then, I think everybody would go for it. But that isn't the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God has stretched out into eternity And he's claimed the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ and he's brought it into the present. And so this morning, in his grace, God is holding out his hand saying, will you take this gift now? Will you let me wipe away your sins today and make you truly alive forever? Maybe there's somebody here this morning thinking, well, this can't be for me. Uh, I've never really had very much time for God. Uh, I've never thought much about his purposes for the world or for me. And the truth is, well, I've done too many bad things. So God can never possibly be interested in me or forgive me. Well, my friend, if that is what you're thinking can I ask you to look at every other Christian in church this morning? Because none of us have done anything to deserve our salvation. Absolutely nothing. It is all by grace.
So can I encourage you to let the grace that God has shown to other people make you bold to ask for God's forgiveness this morning so that you can receive this marvellous salvation as a free gift. Let him set you free for a life of real purpose and meaning. And what's this life all about? Well, it's outlined for us in verses 8 to 10, which I've called God's Gracious Purpose. Well, I began this morning by asking the question, who do you think you are? It's one of those philosophical questions that everybody asks themselves at some time or other. And we keep on asking it, don't we, until we find a truly satisfying answer. But one of the joys of being a Christian is that immediately we're converted, we're released from all that uncertainty. Because God tells us quite clearly who we are and what our lives are for. Uh, it's one of the clearest and simplest descriptions, I think, in the whole of the Bible, uh, and it's there in verse 10, where Paul reminds us, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So to the question, who am I? Every Christian answers confidently, I am God's workmanship. Now think about this with me. In the original, the first meaning of the word workmanship is actually the word creation. And of course that is absolutely true, isn't it? God has created every single human being without exception. But only the Christian can say, God has created me not once, but twice. He created me at birth, and then he made me a new creation, when he made me alive with Christ. But uh, in my preparation for this morning, I was fascinated to discover that the word workmanship can also be translated as masterpiece or work of art. Now that is surely one of the most amazing descriptions of the believer in the whole of Scripture. Everything that God has done to liberate us from bondage and bring us into the kingdom of Jesus and seat us in the place of intimacy and revelation next to him in the heavenly realms where he's teaching us and revealing his heart to us, all of that is making us into God's priceless work of art. Isn't that amazing? Michelangelo was probably the greatest artist at the time of the Reformation. And on uh, one occasion, he was in his workshop uh, chipping away at uh, a shapeless lump of rock. And somebody came into his workshop and said to him, uh, what are you doing? 
and he replied, I'm, I'm liberating an angel from this stone. Now friends, that is what God is doing with us. We are in the hands of the master sculptor. The one who created the majesty and the beauty of the entire universe. And he has never yet thrown away a rock on which he has started to work. What are his tools? Well, his tools are Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, his word and the faithful preaching of his word. Sometimes God might also use um, a great saint to carve his impression on us. Other times, of course, he might use difficult people, painful circumstances. But either way, God always finishes what he starts. He always does. And what are we to do? What is to be the focus of our lives if we are God's workmanship this morning? Well, verse 10 says that it is to do the good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. We don't have to go looking for them. They're right under our nose. Some of those works are described in detail much later in the letter. But I think here the big idea is this that in everything we do, we are to reflect the character of the God who saved us by grace. And we can do it. And the reason we can do it is because he's liberated us from captivity. So now we can do what before was a sheer impossibility, namely to show the same unconditional love and grace to one another that God has already shown to us. So why don't we ask for God's help to be able to do that this coming week. Let's have a moment of quiet and then I'll lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for showing us so clearly that apart from Christ, every human being is dead. Dead in transgressions and sins, totally helpless. But you haven't left us in our hopeless condition. You've come down the ladder to us. And now through Christ, you are holding out this morning the offer of life and liberty to every sinner as a gift of sheer grace. Those of us who've already received it are filled with gratitude in every fibre of our being because we know we've done nothing to deserve it. 
But this morning we want to pray especially for those who might be hearing about your grace for the first time. Father, please show them the same kindness you've shown to us by enabling them to respond to your powerful and life-giving word about Jesus so that they might be made alive with Christ and discover the true purpose for which all of us were created. And we ask it in Jesus' name.